Father, we love you. Lord, thank you for this time that we're gonna have this morning in Genesis chapter eight. And Lord, there's so many pictures and there's so much uh, that can be gleaned will really, in some ways, just be scratching the surface. And, and Lord, we're just trusting that you'll do what only you can do, that, that the Spirit will apply the word to our life and will make the connections and the applications that are critical Lord, don't let us get away with just being hearers. We need to be doers. And so, God, would you convict us of your truth, convince us of your truth. Lord, encourage us uh, to walk in faith in light of it. Lord, we want to be Bible believers. Lord, we don't want to have just a form of godliness and, and no reality. We don't want church just to be a social club, a social setting where we engage uh, because that's what good Christians do. Lord, we worship you, we meet with you. Lord, we hear from you, we talk to you. You're the living God, and we should be your living church. So help us this morning. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the ability to worship freely. Lord, help us to not take that for granted. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to give, uh, to be able to support the family business. Uh, Father, to be engaged in your kingdom work. Lord, bless us as we give, thrive us in our jobs. Lord, help us to be good stewards, both in giving, but also in investing those resources. I pray for all of the leaders, all of the ministry heads, all of the department uh, managers that, that they'd use wisdom. Uh, help them not to be afraid. Lord, help, help, help people not to make cheap decisions that cost us in the long run, but Lord, help us not to be extravagant either. We need wisdom from on high. And Lord, we trust you for that this morning. Lord, I pray if there's any here today that, do, that, that, that does not know you, that does not know that you're their father, that Jesus Christ is their savior and Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, you saved Noah and his family. A cataclysm came and only eight souls were saved. And everyone's accountable. Everyone's accountable. Will they get in the ark? And, and, and Lord, I pray for that today, that people would see need of Christ as Savior and Lord. And so God, we trust you to help us this morning for your own glory, and we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter eight, we're gonna see Noah come to rest at Mount Ararat. We just, you know, we're coming off Genesis six and seven, and what we're seeing is a, an attack on the seed of the woman. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, you've got the very first prophecy and Satan obviously heard it. It's to him, the seed of the woman will crush his head, and so what does he do? He immediately gets to work corrupting the seed of the woman. So we see Cain kill Abel. We see a corruption of the human genome in Genesis chapter six. This is not a godly line of humanity mating with an ungodly line of humanity. There's never been a godly line of humanity in the history of the world, even the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I mean, you've got, you've got murderers, prostitutes, you've got liars, you've got, I mean, you, you name it. And um, all of sin and come short, the glory of God. There's never been a godly line, okay? Uh, when you made a human with a human, you get a, a human, right? You get a baby, baby boy or baby girl, but you, you mate a celestial son of God, a, an angelic being with a terrestrial, and you get a chimera, you get a hybrid, you get a demigod, you get a half-blood, you get giants in the land, you get these Nephilim, 
that end up corrupting the whole of humanity, so much so that, that God says all flesh is corrupted before him. Noah is found upright in his genealogy, upright in his generations. He's got to walk with God, and so God gives him the message of coming cataclysm. What are we seeing? We're seeing that the wages of sin is death. That's what we're seeing. But the gift of God, right? God always makes a way of escape. God's not willing that any would perish. He, in the beginning, God created them male and female, created he them, okay? It's gotta stay human, okay? So, so in Genesis seven, we see the reset button hit on humanity, but we also saw that way of escape in the ark. We saw the ark as a type of Christ, a type of salvation, where Enoch was raptured out before cataclysm fell. He pictures the church that is raptured out before the time of great tribulation. Well, Noah is preserved through this cataclysm. He is a picture, he represents remnant Israel that God will protect in the Judean wilderness during the time of great tribulation. Uh, so here's Noah on an ark. The whole earth is covered with water. What now? Okay, point number one, just get this down in your notes. Never forget, God never forgets. Just don't forget that God never forgets. Genesis chapter eight, verse one, and God remembered Noah. Man, God remembers us whenever we're in tough situations, doesn't he? God remembered Noah and every living thing See, all flesh is now encapsulated inside this ark, and they're gonna need off that boat. This is not a permanent home. And all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters were assuaged. That's an old English word, assuaged for diminish. The waters went down, they, 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 they evaporated, they drained, they diminished. Okay, so in verse number one, we see that God remembers all of those who belong to him. God remembers those he calls his own. In Genesis chapter 19, in verse 29, God remembered Abraham, and so he delivered his brother, he delivered nephew Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. God remembered Rachel. Rachel was barren. God remembered Rachel and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. God remembered Hannah, he opened her womb. They returned from worshiping the Lord, 1 Samuel 1 verse 19, came to the house in Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her and he opened her womb. Exodus chapter two, God remembered Abraham. He remembered his covenant, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. God, we're in bondage. God, we're in the trial, trial of generations. God, they mean to destroy us. God remembered his covenant with his people. God remembers you. A lot of times you'll be tempted to think, you know, um, may, and maybe you think it's for good cause, good reason. I've messed up so much. I've done so many things so stupid. Uh, God must be frustrated with me and he's just saying, forget you. You know how you'll do people. Um, especially with, with the rise of so much, you know, in the way of cancel culture today. You know, we're all, you know, people don't line up with us exactly. If they're not saying what we're saying, if they're not in our tribe, we want to throw them away. You don't have the right to exist. You shouldn't be able to get a job, make a living and eat. <laughs> okay, we want to just say forget you to people 
Uh, no, that's not how God operates. You say, God, he's gotta be disappointed with me and, and, and I think he's done with me. No, God remembers you. First Samuel 12, 22 says, the Lord will not forsake his people for his, great, for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. If you're a child of God, he will never leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. See, you may be in a situation or you may be in a time where you're saying everything seems like, it looks like God has forgotten me, he's forsaken me, he's abandoned me, or whatever. Uh, no, maybe what God's doing is as, as your loving father, he's putting you over his heavenly knee and he's disciplining you. Check out Hebrews. God chastens his children. Uh, he, he absolutely believes in negative reinforcement, okay? So it just may be that God's trying to straighten you out. Draw near to God, watch him draw near to you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Submit yourself, therefore, right? Submit yourself to God. What can you face? What can happen to you in life that would make it reasonable or right for you to fail in fear, to fall into faithlessness? I mean, what what would be a reasonable thing where you say, yeah, this is so bad, I'm not endeavoring to follow after the Lord anymore. God says he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you belong to some small and weak God. He is bigger than your circumstances. He is more than able. If God can deliver eight souls through total cataclysmic catastrophe, right? All flesh perishing on earth. If God can make a way for Noah and his family, he absolutely can make a way for you. I know you think your boss is the Antichrist, but he's just not that big a deal to God. Don't don't fall into the trap of thinking your God is small or weak. The same God that brought Noah through safely, he's gonna bring you through family drama, hardships, tough time at work, tough time at school. Man, that's just, that's nothing but a thing to God. No big deal. I've learned, you know, I've, I've had to learn this lesson a few times over the years. I've learned not to be afraid of a hard time. I've learned not to be afraid of a scary time. These are the times that really just draw me closer to the Lord. You know, I recognize, whoa, this is a tough time. This is a hard time. This is a scary time. And it's like a little kid, a little toddler starts learning to walk. He starts learning to make his own way. Uh, he'll get, you know, pretty big for his britches and he'll start walking off. He doesn't care that mom or dad's still in sight and, and then something happens that spooks him and what does he do? He does a 180 and he runs right back to mama, runs right back to dad. Uh, th- those, those spooky times, those hard times, those rough times in life, the trials, that's actually not a time to freak out, that's a time to remember how much we need the Lord and, and God with me in a hard time is a good time. God with me in a trial, oh man, because God with, God with me is everything. Uh, me being with the Lord, that's everything. I mean, what is heaven but spending eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if that doesn't turn you on, right? If that doesn't get you excited, if that doesn't make you long for heaven, uh, why are you here this morning? <laughs> right? We come into his presence with the sacrifice of praise with thanksgiving, 
We come singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts before the Lord. That's the heaven of heaven is being with the Lord. He'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. Okay, so what do we need? What do we need? Point number two, get this down. There's nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. Notice that God makes a wind to pass over the earth. God makes a wind to pass over the earth. Well, what Noah needs is dry ground, okay? He's in the middle of a trial. He needs to get off the boat and get away from the stink. That's what he needs. He needs needs a place to spread out. So God makes a wind to pass over the earth because the earth is covered with water. That word wind, right, is the same word translated spirit in Genesis chapter one and verse two. Oh, okay, we've been here before, haven't we? In Genesis chapter one and verse two, the spirit of God, it's the same word translated wind right here. History is repeating itself. Wind in your Bible is a type, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. You know this because Jesus made sure you couldn't miss it in John chapter three in verses four through eight. You guys remember the story, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he's got a question. He wants to know how he can be right and be in God's kingdom. And Jesus tells him he has to be born again. And so Nicodemus, that just blows his mind. He's, a, he's an older gentleman. And so he says, how can a man be born again, right? How can he be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, you don't know my mama. I pull something like that. She will beat me six ways to Sunday. That, that's not gonna work. And so Jesus clues him in and he clues you in as well. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water, that's your physical birth, and of the spirit, that's the second birth, that's being born again, that's your spiritual birth. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now watch this, verse eight. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. You can see the effect of the wind. You can hear it as it moves, but you can't see it. You can't tell where exactly it's coming from, where it's going. You say, well, it's blowing that way. Not for long. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, it's, it's like the wind. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The spirit is like wind. You know, when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, what do you have? You've got the inspiration, the inspiriting, the inbreathing of God into the flesh of man, and then the Bible says man became a living soul. Well, we saw how the spirit of God works in Genesis chapter one and verse two. You'll remember Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's original creation. And we saw that we had to put the fall of Satan, of Lucifer, somewhere before Genesis chapter three. Because in Genesis chapter three and verse one, he is hating and working to murder humanity. So it's definitely before that. And we said, if we're really paying attention, we know it's before Genesis chapter two. We know it's before day six, because God told Adam to to tend the garden, right? To work the garden, but also to keep it, to guard it, to put a watch. So there's a trouble in the garden. Sure enough, there was trouble in the garden. So we know it's before day six. Well, where do we put chronologically the fall of Satan? Well, we run our cross-references and we find out Genesis one verse two, darkness was upon the face of the deep 
and the Spirit of God's moving on the face of the waters. In Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, God said, I didn't create it formless and void. The way you see it in Genesis uh, Genesis 1 verse 2, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, verse 1, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, I didn't create it that way, and when we ran all of our cross-references, we said, aha, somewhere after Genesis 1-1, Satan got full of himself, he he foments rebellion in heaven, and there's a cataclysm, there's a judgment that takes place. We knew from Revelation chapter 12 that at least one-third of the heavenly host follows Satan in his rebellion. So what we said, we're right there with uh, Ken Ham and the Creation Institute from the morning and the evening being the first day. That was 6,000 years ago. And so in Genesis chapter one, we see a restoration of creation as much as we see creation. And it's absolutely creation. It's a creative week. God saying and it is. God saying and it becomes, right? Um, so we put Satan's fall right there between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So in order... To deal with that, God erases creation with a cataclysm, and the Spirit of God moves on the face of the deep. After the judgment of Lucifer's sin, God's Spirit moves on the face of the water, this body of waters in the universe. Now here, in Genesis chapter eight, it's on the scale of the earth only, but it's following the judgment of man's sin, and a cataclysmic judgment, a reset on creation, God makes a wind to pass on the waters upon the earth. So look at verse two. It says, the fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. You remember when we saw the flood, the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Well here, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven are stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. So this is key, he restrains the waters from heaven. And so let's go ahead and bring up our our, our doodle. The last time that we did this, we, we, we described how the flood took place because we talked about, remember the massive volume of water that it would take to cover the tops of the mountains. And we said, you know, if Mount Everest is the highest mountain at this point, um, where are you gonna get that much water from, okay? It's a massive amount of water. And we talked about the, the fact that the universe, science admits, we can't see you know, maybe over 95% of the mass of the universe and we think it's water. More and more we think it's water. Well, that's what the Bible describes. Uh, what separates the second heaven from the third, what separates the whole of creation that we can't even see it all, from Asgard, Mount Zion, heaven, okay, is this crystal sea, this deep, you know, it's called the deep. It's called, uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's called a, the, a, a, a crystal sea because the face of it is frozen before the throne of God. <clears throat> well, the fountains of the deep were broken up and so we saw an infusion, we talked about the fact that there are, the Bible says there are circuits in heaven. How does Jesus go from a garden tomb in, in, in Jerusalem to beyond creation itself to the throne of God and back again in a day? The only way you can do that is through some kind of interdimensional travel. It's, it's got to, it, it, that FTL travel is, that's, that's turtle speed. You're not gonna get anywhere. In the, 
universe with faster than light travel. And so what do you, ha- well the Bible says there's circuits in heaven. There are courses in heaven. And so the fountains of the deep are broken up and, and, and so we illustrated that. I'm punching the, oh it did work, okay. So you see that, the fountains of the deep, which there's, it, somehow there's a transport process. Massive iceberg, oh you did it. Did I do it? Huh? Oh, the power switch. (laughs) That's good, okay. You know tech, some tough stuff. And so now here we are, (laughs) come back. (laughs) Now here we are in Genesis chapter eight and verse two, and now the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven are stopped. And so, watch this. So the transportation part stops, and now the waters assuage, right? The waters are removed from the face of the earth. That's what we're, it's a reverse of the flow. Now, let's pick it up in verse three. Notice the time. The waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the, were the tops of the mountains seen. It's a big flood. It's a universal flood. So we saw this last time. The, these dates reveal to us, we find out that God's using a 12-month lunar calendar of 30 days per month. It's a 12-month calendar 30 days per month. So it's five months, right? Five, five months these waters cover the earth. Five, you know, numbers in your Bible have significance. And five in your Bible is associated both with, you'll just see it, connected to death and grace. You'll see that with the number five. Five months waters cover the earth. What did that ensure? Well, death to all, all corrupted flesh and grace to eight souls who were saved by water. Right, isn't that what Peter told us in his epistle? So five months, right, uh, death to all flesh. Over and over again in your Bible, you'll see, you'll see a killing, a murder take place, and, and they smote him where? Under the, the fifth rib. Uh, what, God says pay attention to the number five. Uh, pay attention to it, well there's, there's a lot of numbers you need to pay attention to in your Bible, but, but five is death and grace. So this is death to the world, but salvation to those on the ark. That's what we're seeing. And now the ark rests. It rests on the mount. It rests on Ararat. This would be in modern Turkey today. And, and he's there for almost, well really, almost two and a half more months, the ark. He's just stuck in the ark on Ararat. So he does some testing in verse number six. Let's look at the pictures. There's types that illustrate God's truth to us. And so let's do some bird watching. Verse six, and it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and he sent forth a raven which went to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. 
And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, seven by the way is a number you wanna pay attention to in your Bible. Other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him anymore. Okay, so he's doing this in seven day cycles. Why is that? Well, he already knows. He already knows the pattern from creation, right? Remember, he's actually just a few years removed from Adam himself. Whenever you look at the lifespans of these, of Earth's, furly, Earth's uh, earliest inhabitants, okay? These long lifespans. He's just a few years removed from Adam, Adam himself. And he knows that God labored for six days and on the seventh day he rests. Uh, we saw that pattern in biblical history, didn't we? There's a millennial day pattern that we have to pay attention to according to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. A day is, I mean a day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day and, and so no wonder the whole of biblical human history breaks down into this millennial day pattern. You've got six days of labor followed by a day of rest. The day of the Lord is called a day of Rest, yeah, I just handed you the answer, okay, right? It's, it's the millennial reign of Christ, the Lord's day, it's a day of rest. That's how it's described over and over again in, in scripture. And what do we have? Well, if we, if we look at the genealogies and, and the histories in the Bible, we see the lifespans of the people that are listed there. Usher did all the work, he laid it out. We know that Adam, uh, his life started 6,000 years ago. I mean, we're there. Uh, it's it's 6,000 years ago was the, was the life of Adam. So what do you have? Six days, six millennial days of labor, followed by a day of rest. This would be another reason that you'll hear us make statements like, well, you know, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know we're in the last of the last days. Jesus is coming soon, very soon. Are you ready? Now, now again, God always gives himself wiggle room. Everybody in this room may die of old age. You know, I don't know, this is why, this, this is how we operate. We gotta be ready for Jesus to come back today, but we gotta work in such a way so that our grandkids can have fruit at the judgment seat of Christ, amen? Uh, we're, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. That's what we're, that's the race that we're running. So again, this is review, but when we're talking about so Noah's keeping a Sabbath, is what we're saying. Noah is recognizing this principle. He's operating on a seven-day interval. Now, in terms of the types, we've already seen that Noah is a type of God the Father. He's opening the windows of the ark. You remember the ark has three levels, just like there are three heavens. We're standing in the first heaven. The cosmos is the second heaven. We saw that in Genesis chapter one. There's a beaten out expanse between the earth and this great body of water and it's in that expanse, in that firmament, he makes the sun, the moose, and, and he made the stars also. That's what goes in the second heaven and we know there's three because Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven. If there's a third heaven, that means there's a 
second heaven, and if there's a second heaven, that means there's a, there's a first heaven. You just gotta decide if you're a Bible believer. You know about the first and the second ones, because you can see them with your eyes, you know, especially when it gets dark. You're breathing air on the first heaven, you can see the, the cosmos, you can see the second heaven. Um, man, I, I'm as sure about the third heaven as I am about anything because my Bible tells me so. Okay, so this ark picturing creation, just like it pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of creation, has this window at the top. There's this window to the heaven. Okay, so he opens it and some birds go out, right? He looses some birds. Well, that's a picture of God the Father. The ark is a type of Christ, it's a type of the universe with its three stories pointing to the three biblical heavens. Okay, so what about these birds? in verses four through 12. Well, the raven is the first one. And get this down in your notes. The raven is an unclean scavenger bird. You say, crows are cute. Well, that may be, but they're nasty. (laughs) They, they They will eat some trash, okay? They're scavenger birds, and you see that in Leviticus chapter 11. So the raven is a picture. It's a type of Satan himself. And what's this raven doing? I mean, the raven's like, see ya. Smell you later. I mean, he's gone. That's all we see of the raven. Well, the waters are covering the face of the earth. How's this raven? I mean, can he just keep flying for another two and a half months? No way. What's he doing? He's making a home on corpses. He's making a home on the destruction floating on the surface of the waters. That's what he's doing. Uh, He's an unclean scavenger bird. He's going from carcass, dead carcass, to dead detritus, right? He's living off of death. That's what he's doing. And this continues until the waters are dried up from off the earth. Well, that's exactly what Satan does. Satan will go to and fro in the earth. Check out Job chapter one, verses six and seven. Yeah, the the, the raven's going to and fro in the earth until the waters are dried up. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them, and the Lord said unto Satan, whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it. Okay, so think about that. That, that crow, that raven, went to and fro in the earth till the waters were dried up from off the earth. And now here's Satan saying, I'm going to and fro. Like, how, how, how did anybody miss that? Uh, crows are awesome. Yeah, yeah, so is the devil. He, he, he looks like an angel of light until he's killing you, right? He's a, he's a murderer from the beginning, John chapter eight. I'm going to and fro in the earth, verse seven, and from walking up and down in it. Okay, so think about that. That is, that is Satan's ability until the time comes when there's no more sea. Have you ever thought about that? Satan walks to and fro in the earth until the time comes that there's no more sea. So let me give you a quick end of day's timeline. What comes next on the prophetic calendar? What's next on the list? Christ's return for the church, right? The rapture of the church. Sometime after that, there will be a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel in the, in the, in the chaos of the rapture. Governmental authority will, will get coordinated and there'll be this seven-year treaty that, 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 that the Antichrist makes with the nations of the world with Israel. And in the middle of that seven-year covenant, there will be an assassination attempt on the life of the Antichrist. 
The Bible says in Revelation 13, he has a grievous head wound, puts him out, everybody says he's dead. And he's lying in state for three days and on the third day, up from the table he arose. And uh, he's absolutely working to be in triumph or his foes. He goes to war against God and against God's people. He declares himself Messiah. And he, he does exactly what Daniel the prophet said he would do. He goes into the temple of God as God, showing himself that he is God. It's called the abomination of desolations. And then at that point, God says to the Jewish people, run. <laughs> do not pack. Don't do anything, run to the Judean wilderness where they're supernaturally protected by God. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. They'll be supernaturally protected by God for three and a half years, but it's hell on earth. It's a time of great cataclysm. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's so bad, except those days be shortened, right? No flesh would survive the wrath of God being poured out on planet earth. At the end of the second three and a half years of Daniel's treaty, that covenant, that peace treaty that the Antichrist makes with the nations, Christ returns, behold, he cometh with 10,000s of his saints. He comes to rule and to reign. He kicks the Antichrist's tail, the false prophet's tail, they go straight to hell. And then Satan is sealed for a thousand years in a bottomless pit. Okay, check out Revelation chapter 20. Verse seven says, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. So there will be a little hiatus of 7,000 years where, where Satan can't walk to and fro on the earth, but he's not done walking to and fro on the earth. He was just in prison during the reign, the millennial reign of Christ. But at the end of those thousand years, he'll be released and he'll go to and fro on the earth. He goes out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth. Now his followers go to Jerusalem. They compass the camp of the saints about that, the beloved city. The Bible says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Watch this now, verse 10. And the devil, we know it's Satan because of the context, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan goes to and fro in the earth until the end of the millennial reign of Christ where he is loose for a little season, causes a big mess, and it's so bad God hits the reset button on creation. As a matter of fact, when the fire from God falls out of heaven, you can read about that in 2 Peter chapter three, and it consumes everything. And now in Revelation 20, everybody is standing, everybody outside of Christ is standing on nothing, being judged out of the books. Okay, it's called the great white throne judgment. What comes next? No more sea. Satan walks to and fro in the earth until the time comes when there's no more sea on the earth. Revelation 21, verse one, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. That happened in chapter 20 and there was no more sea. Do you see that? That raven shows you, you'll get insight into how the devil operates by watching a raven. You say, well, I got a raven that's a buddy. Well, yeah, until he gets hungry and you fall asleep and he's eating your eyeball. Okay, so there it is, okay. Now the dove, okay, let's keep bird watching. The dove is a clean bird, okay, he's a clean bird. 
And you see that in Leviticus as well, Leviticus 5, 12, and 15, tell you that the, the dove is, is ceremonially clean. Why? Well, because he's a type of the Holy Spirit. And you can't miss that if you'll study your Bible. Matthew 3, 16, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. What was the Spirit like? It was descending like a dove, and it lands on Jesus. Okay, John chapter one, verse 32. John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode on him, on Jesus. Okay, now here's what you need to know. A dove cannot live like a raven. A dove can't just go around to and fro in the earth surviving on death. The dove isn't carnage. It's sent out three times, and on the third time, the earth is revealed as being able to sustain life, and so the dove's like, I'm done. I'm gonna make a home out here in the world. So three times, the dove has to be sent out before Noah knows it's safe to open the ark. Three times, three's a number big, another big number in your Bible that you gotta pay attention to. One of the things that three illustrates for you is balance in life, right? Um, religiously, the feasts come in sets of three, uh, but you'll see it all over the Bible. Balaam smites the ass how many times? How many times does Samson lie to Delilah? How many times? How many, how many times does Daniel pray in Daniel chapter six? How many times does the heavenly vision come down in Acts? How many times, right, do you see Jesus praying in the garden in Matthew 26? How many times does Jesus ask Simon Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Uh, you'll see it over and over. You'll see it all over the Bible. Just three, three, three. I see it in my own life. Uh, I can kind of map out my adult life post-education in cycles of three. It's kind of weird uh, whenever I noticed it. I graduated with uh, an engineering degree and I, I realized I couldn't leave Kansas City because I had to go to Bible school. By the, by the time I'd gotten through college, I realized I didn't know my Bible <laughs> at all. And so I had to stay in, in Kansas City, and, and at that time, you couldn't get an engineering job. Electronics engineering wasn't gonna happen in Kansas City. I'd have to move to another major metropolitan area uh, because King Radio, uh, it's uh, uh, Bendix King, it's, uh, what is it today? Now it's, uh, um, they make thermostats. Honeywell, yeah. So, you know, this was in the first of the military cutbacks okay, at the, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and Bendix King had just laid off over 2,000 elect electronics engineers in Kansas City. So I wasn't, you know, fresh out of college, I wasn't gonna get an engineering job here. So I got a job in sales, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Sales, flat put, beans on the table, okay? So I was in sales for, for 14 years, that was the first first uh, cycle of my life as an adult, you know, and there I got married and, and started having kids. And then after that, I went to work full-time at uh, KCBT. Then it was KCBT, now it's Graceway. And I uh, did that job for seven years. So I, you know, it was interesting in sales. I worked at one company for seven years. I got tired of them ripping me off. And so I went to another company for seven years. And then I went to work for KCBT for seven years. And and uh, well, now I'm 14 years at MBT and counting. And so it's just interesting how you know, my, 
adult life kind of fits that pattern of three and of sevens. That's just, I'm not saying there's really much to that, but it's interesting that I can mark it that way. Um, Three is balance in life. Just pay attention to, to numbers in the Bible. Now here's the key. What are we seeing with this dove going out three times? Well, it's God's plan for the ages on display is what we're seeing here. If the, if the dove pictures the Holy Spirit, the first time it goes out, it comes back, it's got no place to land, there's nothing in its beak. Well, the Holy Spirit moving on the face of the waters, there's no place to rest. So all of this is the activity of the Holy Spirit pre-Israel. But then the second time the, Holy, the dove goes out, uh, it returns with an olive leaf in its mouth. Well, that's, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit with Israel. Israel, the olive tree and the fig tree picture the spiritual and natural, natural uh, the national life of Israel, the nation of Israel. You'll see those trees associated with the nation of Israel. So it's no wonder if the olive tree pictures the spiritual life of the nation of Israel, this dove comes back with an olive leaf in its mouth. That's kind of interesting, no surprise there. So that pictures the Holy Spirit's ministry with the nation of Israel, but there's still no resting place. There's no permanent abode. But the third time the Holy Spirit, I mean the dove goes out. The third time the dove goes out, it finds a resting place. And that pictures the fact that the Holy Spirit finds a home where? Have you ever read Ephesians chapter two? You are, church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. It's found a home in this earth in the bride of Christ. Don't you know that you've been bought with a price? Your body, your spirit are God's. You're to glorify God with your body and your spirit. And your body, Paul told the church at Corinth, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the dwelling place in this earth of God's Holy Spirit. So that's what, that's what the birds teach us. Um, I get that a raven's more fun and that, I mean, that dove makes the cooing no, noise all the time. You get, that's still better than a caw. I'm just, just saying, okay. Pick your birds. Okay, verse 13. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry in the second month on the seventh and 20th day of the month, and the earth dry, uh, was the earth dried. So now we've got a reset back to Genesis chapter one and verse two, or verse, uh, um, um, verse 28, rather. Uh, in Genesis chapter one and verse 28, Adam has the whole world at his feet. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Why does our King James Bible use the word replenish? Well, we know that in Genesis 1.1, it was the earth was home, it was host to the celestial host. Adam, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and so no wonder we get to Genesis 9 verse one. Noah's got the whole world at his feet, and the commission that was given to Adam in Genesis 1.28, it's now his to claim, and so it's directly repeated to him in Genesis 9 verse one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So nothing's changed in terms of God's agenda. This is the same commission that was given to Adam and oh by the way, son of God, it's the same commission that's given to you. 
As many as received Christ, to them God gave the power to be called what? The sons of God. Adam, Luke 3, 38, was called the son of God. Why? Well, because he was created. He's a direct creation by God the Father. You, Christian, are a direct creation by God the Father. In Christ, you're a new creature. Your old life passes away. Behold, all things are become new, amen? What does God say to the church? He says, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, go in my power. How does he say it in Acts chapter one, verse eight? Ye shall receive power after what? After the coming, the indwelling, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And what do we do? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world, amen. So go into all the world, right? Teach all nations, be fruitful, win souls, preach the gospel. Those that respond, baptize them and then teach them. Make disciples, be fruitful, multiply, and if you'll keep being fruitful, if you'll keep multiplying, that's the path to replenishing the earth. This is why we keep saying over and over again, our mission is to win souls, make disciples, and then train and equip our members, train and equip leaders to multiply ministry around the world. Because it's the same commission. We're to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So this is the end of Noah's stay on the boat. They're over a year in the ark. When you add up all the dates, right, it's 377 days. That's five months floating, seven and a half, seven and a half months on the mountaintop. And then what comes next? Well, Noah opens the door that God shut. There it is. Noah opens the door that God shut. So let's look at the picture of Noah's obedience, what's illustrated here. Remember, God shut the door. God himself, Noah and all the animals go into the ark, but we saw God shut the door, and that was a picture of the fact that, that, that salvation ultimately is of God, that we can't save ourselves. So God shut the door, and nobody else outside of the ark could open it. When God shuts a door, no man can open it. The only way to open a door that God has shut, we found that in Revelation 3.20. The only way to open the door that God shuts is for the believer to have a right heart attitude attitude toward this book. You have to have a right heart toward the word of God. This is the biblical way to open doors. In Revelation three and verse 20, we find out that a man can open a door by hearing the voice of God. When you open this book, what what are you doing? You're opening a door You're opening a door of God, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, if any man hear my voice, you know, Adam in Genesis chapter three heard the voice of the Lord, right? Heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and he hid himself. What happened? I mean, he's avoiding this relationship with the living word of God. It's a closed door. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. And uh, this is how we finished up last week. This was the secret of the Philadelphian church. Uh, the, the church age that, that was most used of God to turn the world upside down for his glory, 
It's called the church of the open door. Why? Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut. No man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Man, I don't know about you. I've said this many times from this pulpit. I don't want to be guilty of going through the motions as a Christian, okay? I don't wanna just hold services. I don't wanna just play church like little kids play house. I want what we do together to rock the nations for the glory of Christ. I want what our, our activity, our life together should fall out to God being glorified, not just here at 40th and Walnut, but in the midst of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. We need to be people who are all about the voice of the Lord. <laughs> we need to be a people of an open book. Now we live in a time, we live in an age of Laodicea. We live when so much of the church is rich and increased with goods and feels like she has need of nothing and she thinks she's doing really well, but the reality that we see in Revelation chapter three is she makes God sick. He says, I, I wanna spew you out of my mouth. You're Somebody's got a loud phone, that's amazing. Or was that outside? Okay, stay with me, we're wrapping up. Yeah, I was like, yes, Lord? <laughs> okay. Um, you know, so much of the church in the last days think that because they're rich and increased with goods, we don't need God's help. We're, we're smart, we're, we're rich, we're powerful. We've got this thing figured out. And it's nauseous to the Lord. Uh, the arrogance, the self-sufficiency, the smartness, right? The, we're doing church smart. We're doing, it, we're doing it with cunning. We're doing it with elegance. Uh, panache, you know, and God's like, it's all trash. Man, I wanna be a part of a people who say, I'm not playing, my life is God's. <laughs> my life, it's all in for all his glory. If what we're doing is not, a, if what we're doing, it doesn't fall out to the winning of souls, the making of disciples, the training and equipping of leaders, then we're playing at it, we're wasting our time. So church leaders, when you're serving, when you're working in ministry, is what you're doing, is it making disciples, is it equipping people for the work? If not, let's adjust. Let's not play at it, let's do the things that produce the results that we think we value. And guess what, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by God's spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's how it gets done. This is why our corporate prayer ministry is so critical. This is why prayer in our, in our Bible studies is so critical. We must be a people of prayer who call on God for the reality of his word over the life of his people, over the life of our ministry. Except the Lord build this church we're playing, we're laboring in vain. I wanna be a part of a people that are all in, that, that, that we're a people of an open door because we have an open book and God's giving us fruits, God's giving us souls, God's giving us people groups, he's giving us nations. Uh, I've shared this before. Uh, whenever I get to the judgment seat of Christ, uh, 
with all my heart, I wanna meet people who are proclaiming Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and they're there doing it because we won some people to Christ and trained them up, and they went and won some people to Christ and trained them up, who also went and won some people to Christ and trained them up, and now they're worshiping Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They know Jesus' name, but they don't know our name. But we were a link in the chain that dropped them there. Does that make sense? Man, with all my heart, I wanna be a part of something like that. I wanna meet people in eternity. You're here uh, because God was pleased to use me in your life. We never met, (laughs) but I'm so grateful. Father, I come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I ask that right now that you'd find us a people of faith, a people of the book, a people for whom you open doors. We hear your voice. Uh, you're, you're abiding in us. We're abiding in you, and we're bearing much fruit. Lord, in a room this big with this many people, there's gonna be those who are who don't feel, they don't sense, they don't know the, the need that they have of you. They don't understand how desperately they need to be dependent upon you. And Lord, I just wanna ask in the name of Jesus that God, you would open eyes, that you'd pour out your spirit in conviction and help us to see that without you we can do nothing. We can live our whole lives and even work very hard and accomplish nothing of eternal weight and significance nothing that will bring glory to you and the sorrow and the regret that will come of being in heaven and realizing we we took the life that you bought with the blood of Christ and we just wasted it on living for ourselves. God, open our eyes, speak to our hearts, help us to recognize we must settle for nothing less than being people of an open book, of an open door. Lord, I know that um, there's also some that, that, that do not know you, that have never come to the place where they've recognized their sin and the wages of their sin. They've never recognized that you are righteously uh, offended. You're righteously required to judge our sin. And they don't know about your great love that sent Christ to, to live the life that we could not live and to die in our place. God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for some, that today would be the day of repentance for some, that today would be the day of rededication for some. Lord, that today would be a day where some believers get on a path to growth, they get on a path to fruitfulness. God, you're worthy, you're worth being right with. You're worth us saying no to all the reasons and the excuses the pitfalls, the devices, the traps that hinder our life of obedience and following you. And so God, I beg, Lord, would you have your way with every soul, every one in this place today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.